0: is one of the most glorious sections of of Scripture you will see. All of God's Word is glorious, but this one is just one of the brightest gems there about the God who is just and justifier apart from works by free, sovereign grace alone through Jesus Christ of people who are ungodly and sinners. (laughs) Brethren, that's us. Let's stand together and let's hear the reading of God's Holy Word. I'm going to read this morning. I'm going to read verses just for context. I'm going to read verses 21 to 26. We'll be focusing especially today then uh, on the first part of verse 25. Hear the word of the Lord. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all. And on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith. To demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our growth and grace. You may be seated, brethren. You all know that really for me, apart from the Holy Scriptures, I think the, I would say if, on my top five book list, um, right, right at the top under the Scriptures for me has been over the years, has been Pilgrim's Progress. And of all the scenes in that book, which I, <laughs> I just, I find myself going back to over and over and over again, and it just speaks to me. Uh, it's life. That's, that's the obedience of faith. That's the life of faith in so many ways. So there's a pastoral plug, too. If you haven't read it recently, do so. If you did read it recently, do it again. But um, there's the scene when Christian, you know, having left the city of destruction, having gone out through the slough of despond, you know, having been, you know, gone briefly tried to go to the, to the city of morality and carnality to be saved by the works, to be justified and sanctified by the works of the law. And he saw that that ended poorly. And the Lord mercifully sent evangelists to him who got him back on the path and said, remember that wicked gate where into you I directed you at the beginning, go. And he directs him to interpreter's house. you Remember that? And he sees these glorious visions and the word is broken to him and opened to him. But after he goes to interpreter's house, he still has that burden that he's been carrying the whole way and then you see this scene where the the lord leads christian and it's through this narrow way and the way bunyan describes it, it is gated on either side by the walls of salvation this narrow way but it's guided and it comes up a, a hill in ascent and at the top of that hill he sees the cross looking at that cross, he ascends and it says as he gets close, the burden breaks. The weight of his sin, his guilt, and God's just condemnation falls off and it rolls down the hill into this open sepulcher never to be seen again. And Christian's response He says, O cross, O cross of Christ, wherein my burden, I'm paraphrasing, but wherein my burden fell away, that this cross and the blood of him who there died for me and lived for me has relieved me of this burden of sin and guilt, of condemnation. O blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed be all more, he said, rather him who there bled and died for me. Then the angels come and they give him robes of righteousness, white robes. In but for Christian, it was the cross of Jesus, brethren. It was the cross and the blood when the burden fell away. Now, I know this is old. We've heard this a million times. This section of Romans is very familiar to us. My, my concern always, pastorally, is that it's too familiar to us. Brethren, what I want you to see today what Paul would have you to see, what the Lord would have you to see, is that Jesus Christ and his death, as we've been looking at the effects of the cross of Christ, and we saw last week about redemption in verse 24, Jesus was set forth as a redemption, a, a ransom payment through his blood. Faith, this day we see that Jesus not only is a ransom payment, we would see that Christ in his death was a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice and His blood was the redemption payment. Because He shed His blood and death, God's holy wrath due to our sin and sinfulness was fully, fully satisfied. Not just partially. And Jesus and the living God then can and does, has, justify, declare us not guilty. And He speaks His ver- verdict of not guilty justly over souls of men and women who are and were in fact guilty as charged ungodly hopeless helpless he justly speaks his verdict of justified and righteous because Jesus their redeemer their lamb through his redeemed blood through his blood has redeemed and atoned for their souls and not only that, but Jesus through them his redeemed. He will through his redeemed people, through his church, bought and washed and covered in the blood of Jesus, he will redeem the blood-bought world through Jesus. Brethren, that's the gospel. I want you today to believe it again. Let's consider first of all today as we look at the second achievement of the cross, verse 25 says there, as we said, that we're justified freely. That justification comes by God's grace alone through a redemption, a a, a purchase, a ransom payment that Jesus paid, redeeming us from bondage, from our accursed enslavement to the world, the flesh, to the devil, to destruction and, and, and doom. But it says that this redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation... Now, I want to just focus in on that, a propitiation by His blood to be received through faith. The cross of Jesus Christ achieved full propitiation of God's holy wrath. That's the, that's the, the point today. What do we mean by propitiation? Biblically, propitiation really kind of involves three related aspects. Number one, and I know there's there's a lot of big words here ending in, the, in shun, so I'm going to try to define these for you, but propitiation, the first aspect that we think of propitiation is what is often referred to as expiation, that is simply the idea of expiation is the idea of the removing of sin, it is, uh, it is the turning, it is the taking away of, of sin, the cleansing away of sin and the removal of it, think Leviticus 16, right? Leviticus 16, on that day of atonement, there was two aspects. On the one, it began with the sacrifice of blood of bulls and goats on behalf of the priest and then the the high priest and then the people, right? But then the second part of that was the laying on of the hands on a goat as the scapegoat and not sacrificing, but rather laying on your hands the transfer of, of the guilt symbolically and then sending that goat away removing it from the camp, outside the camp. That second image of the scapegoat, that's expiation. That is the transfer of our guilt and the removing of the guilt and the, the, the dirtiness, the defilement of sin and sending it away. But then the second aspect when we talk about propitiation is that first part of the Day of Atonement. It is the actual killing of the blood of the in the old old covenant the blood of the bulls and the goats which could not ultimately we heard in hebrews could not take away really it was symbolic for the present time right when these things were offered God in his forbearance we're going to see passing over sins, but it was pointing towards that final lamb and sacrifice of Jesus who who would truly atone. And when we say atone, that's that second aspect of propitiation. This is the idea that blood must be shed because there is real anger and wrath. You cannot draw into the presence of the holy God without the shedding of blood, righteous blood, spotless blood of lamb. Brethren, when we talk about propitiation, then it's more than just the removing of sins and taking it out of the way. It is that. But the key to propitiation is that it is is the satisfying of the holy and justified wrath of Almighty God against sin and sinners. Sinners. It is a making of a a true atoning of making at one between people and the God who was angry at them, turning away his wrath and actually turning it not only to where God is no longer angry but to where now he is positively in a state of grace toward us. And he says, he who previously said, stay away, you are not worthy, and rightly through the blood of Jesus now says, come in. Draw near. Draw near through the blood, through the veil of Jesus. That's propitiation. It's atoning. It's it is assuaging the righteous wrath of God. Expiation, you might say, deals with our sin problem. Propitiation, in its fullness, deals with our holy wrath of God problem. One deals with our sin vertically. Toward God, but it takes, you know, with our sin against the Lord. The other one deals with it, with it uh, one deals with it horizontally. The second one, propitiation, deals with it vertically. With God's wrath being turned away, fully poured out on Jesus, and his favor being turned toward us, his wrath satisfied. And now he can truly say, you are justified, and you are blessed by grace. You are chosen and favored by me. Well, some have objected. And said, "Well, you know, that sounds very almost like pagan, you know, The, the shedding of blood, like God is some bloodthirsty, yeah, some bloodthirsty pagan God, you know. And, and how, how does Christian propitiation, without which there is no gospel, brethren, I might add, how does Christian propitiation differ from, may say, pagan or pagan pacification of their gods, or even old covenant? sacrifices. Number one is unlike paganism, God's wrath, instead of being capricious like the gods of peoples of this world, you know, uh God's their gods just get angry because they're just like the people who worship them, right? They get angry when they're not, they don't get their daily allotment. They get angry uh when their selfish, self-centered uh desires are not met, right? But the Christian gospel, our God, our God's wrath is all about His righteousness. He is not unrighteous like the gods of the, the world. He is about His true justice and His holiness, and only the living God is holy. God's wrath, it express, our propitiation expresses God's perfect holy nature in His just indictment and condemnation of human sin and moral depravity, corruption. People like to disparage God's, you know, people disparage God's name and glory and and they destroy other people's lives as well as their own by their sin. They destroy and ruin the good, very good world that God made using the dominion for selfish, self-serving Idolatrous ends instead of the glory of God and the flourishing of man, and the God of the God of the living God, the God of believers, the true God, is not and cannot be indifferent to that, and still be just. His wrath, unlike the gods of the nations, unlike demonic gods, his wrath is righteous his righteous response. He hates sin, and rightly so, sin must be judged. It is good for sin to be judged and to be removed. And to be atoned for so that the righteous and righteousness and dominion may flourish on earth as it is in heaven. Brethren, that's number one. Number two is unlike paganism, not only is God's wrath truly about his righteousness and justice and holiness, but unlike with paganism, God, the living God, is always the one who provides the very blood and life sacrifice that he demands. Right? This is, this is the propitiation we need. He gives. Think Abraham. We saw this, right? Abraham, I'm going to have you sacrifice your son. And yet the Lord knew in calling faithful Abraham the man of faith before he got there that Abraham would begin to do in faith what God himself would finally do. God provided the lamb. And that's the way propitiation always works, brethren, You know, unlike with Cain and Abel, Cain brought the works of his hands. Oh God, here's here's my fruit, the labors of my hands and the sweat of my brow. Take it and be satisfied. But the Lord said, No, I will have blood. And he blessed Abel because the sheep that Abel brought were the ones that God provided. And they pointed to God's way of atonement, His way of propitiation. He must do it. The fact is, brethren... People we can never manipulate, people can never manipulate or placate the living God with the sacrifice of our own choosing. That's what the pagans do, right? In love, the living God provides to and for us precisely what his own justice demands so that his righteous wrath is justly satisfied, we are justly justified, and his mercy and ongoing grace and peace toward us is fully just and holy, and true and good. The Old Testament, of course, shows us the background as we saw propitiation and the Aaronic priesthood and the sacrificial system. The precursor to the blood of Jesus because the blood of bulls and goats simply delayed and postponed judgment on sin, but they could not take it away. Only the blood of Jesus could do that, and the faithful saw that, and they looked forward to Jesus' day and were glad like Abraham. The bloodshed and those rites in the old covenant represented what sin deserved. When God ratified his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, you remember, animals were slaughtered as part of an oath that God took of self-malediction. You remember, the Lord himself put Abraham into a deep sleep and he said, I myself in the burning oven, I will go through and I will keep this covenant on my own terms. Blessing, I will bless you. There's nothing you can offer me, Abraham, which is sufficient for my holy righteousness, but I myself will make sure it's kept, and I will, Abraham, I'll provide that lamb. God called down a curse on himself if he was unfaithful. That's what that meant, the walking through. The slaughtered animals represent what unfaithfulness deserves, death. God said in Leviticus 17, 18, I've given the... Uh, The blood for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood that makes atonement by the life. God knows that His people would sin. He knew that they would break His law. He knew that they were frail and prone to sin. So in His love and grace, He Himself provided His own spotless blood sacrifice to turn away His own holy and just judgment from falling on them to cover and to cleanse their sin, to expiate and justify and, and to propitiate in order to ensure that he could then justly pour out, as we saw in Ephesians earlier, that he could lavish upon them the riches of his grace in his kindness in Christ Jesus. And it's very clear that Jesus himself is the final sacrifice. All those blood of bulls and goats, as well as the scapegoat, they were ultimately ineffectual They were postponing. But Jesus comes and He once and for all, as we read in Hebrews earlier, once for all He is sanctified and justified those who are being sanctified. Once for all by His blood. He has done it. It was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hebrews 10.4 Jesus Christ, Hebrews 10.12 offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Brethren, so both propitiation and both expiation, propitiation the covering as well as the cleansing are all part of Jesus' substitutionary sacrificial death on the cross. Jesus really did pay it all. Brethren, turn real quickly to Hebrews chapter 2. I'll make a couple quick comments very quickly. Hebrews 2. There's a few other places where the word that's translated, this word propitiation doesn't show up very much. It's a very important word, but it only shows up a few times in the New Testament. So, make a couple very quick comments here, though, on a couple of the other verses where it does show up. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Reminded in the previous verses that Jesus, he took on flesh and blood as we did, that he might destroy him with the power of death, the devil, and release. There's redemption. Right through those who fear of death in their lifetime, subject to bondage. But when we get to verse seventeen. Therefore, in all things, Jesus had to be made like his brethren, flesh and blood, true humanity. Why? So that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest to us in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, to make propitiation for the sins of the people to turn away divine wrath and to bring us into divine favor and blessing. Jesus, in order that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest, interceding always, ever lives to intercede, Hebrews 7.25 says, that in order for Jesus and for us to draw near to God, Jesus had to make that propitiation. His own blood had to be shed. Every step of the way is the only way that you and I can draw near to God and we could be cleansed. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. Very quickly. Two places in 1 John where this word propitiation shows up as well. Helasterion in the Greek. We're going to come back to this in a minute, but notice it says here in chapter 2, I'll read verse 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. You wouldn't continue in sin. If anyone sins, and again, the idea there, continuous, if anyone continues practicing sin, we have, I mean, he says, anyone should sin, rather, commits a sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We say, praise God for that. When you and I stumble in sin, and you will this week, this day, you have an advocate. I don't need to say... Worry, I've done it again. Lord, I stepped in that sin again. That same old habit, I fell in again. And we think, oh, God's really going to be mad this time. Now, we don't want to displease our father, do we? We want to glorify God because we love him, but we don't need to say, oh, he's going to crush me. I say, oh, thank God I have an advocate, and his name is Jesus, the righteous one. He paid it all. But look what he says in verse 2. He himself is the propitiation. He is the blood atonement that turns away God's holy wrath for our sins. But then he goes further not for ours only, but also for the whole world. What does that mean? Jesus didn't actually die for every single soul in the world. Jesus, through his blood, he paid for his people. Mark ten forty five. he says that he came and he is the good shepherd. He laid down his life as a ransom for many. We're told in John 10 that he's got another flock whom he must bring from every tribe, tongue, and nation, the people of God. And he's going to gather them into one flock, one fold, one shepherd. But Jesus' blood actually accomplishes what it set out to do. He definitively atones. So what does he mean here? He doesn't mean universalism, that every single soul will be saved. God is still angry at the wicked every day, as Psalm 7 says. His bow is ready and it is bent and ready to those who will not repent. But it does mean that a vast innumerable, myriads upon myriads, as Revelation 7 says, around the throne, from every tribe, tongue, nation, people throughout the world, Brethren, I believe that the redemption that Jesus paid is such that he will have that for which he paid. The Lord God gave it to him as his inheritance. Brethren, we need to think far bigger in our view of Jesus' atonement. He's got a lot, a lot of people throughout history and throughout the world. And that should give us hope and it should give us encouragement. Then We look around and say, man, there's just so much darkness, so much, so much despair, so much going wrong. Brethren, the cross of Jesus tells me Jesus bought and paid for a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people. For the world. A blood-bought, blood-covered world. And He will have it. Jesus said, we all know John 3, 16, God did not, you know, God loved the world He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish. But we're told in verse 17, for Christ did not come into the world the world that would be condemned through Him, but that the world should be saved. Well, brethren... If Jesus came into the world, that the world through him would be saved, I for one certainly believe that the world will be saved. It will be redeemed because Jesus paid for it. Not every soul, but for nations, institutions, families, vast. We should be much more optimistic in our view of Jesus' blood. Verse 410, lastly, chapter of of 1 John, last place where this shows up. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. You see it? It wasn't that we loved him. He initiated. He loved us. And what did he do in his love? He sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation, to turn away his own holy wrath and our sins because he loved us. Do you see it? The God who is angry at us is also the God because he also loves. Can you get this, parents? <laughs> you love your kids. Sometimes your kids can do things or they do even patterns of sin that make you righteously indignant. But if you have set your love on them, you will bend over backwards even to your own hurt for their souls because you love them. Even though you are justly maybe angry at something they've done. <laughs> or you know, We understand this at least in the principle. How much more the living God, though His wrath is just and holy against... Those, But his chosen, he said, I will send my son and I will make that propitiation. Oh, brethren, blessed cross, blessed sepulchral. Blessed more be the man who there died, that I might be counted once and for all just and holy and righteous in the sight of God. So what does this mean? Let me just close by making a few key applications. Number one, as I said, the cross of Christ empowers a blood-bought life. Redemption and also a blood-covered life that's covered by God's grace. Number one, then draw near to and take up and boast only in Jesus' cross. I'm not going to go through all the verses. We read those there in Hebrews 10 earlier. Reminds you of Galatians 6, though. The Apostle Paul says there that I boast now only in the cross of Jesus Christ, by which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. What on earth? Who boasts in an instrument of torture and death? Who takes and makes a sign of it like the early Christians did, a cross? Who hangs it on their churches where blood and and, 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 and wrath was poured out? You make that a sign and yet says, Paul says, I boast. I boast in it. It is my glory. What does he mean by that? Here's what he means. Let me give you a... a an extended quote, I think, from John Piper. I think he hits this very well here. I just want to read it. For the Christian, all other boasting and whatever else it may be should also and must also be a boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ. All exultation in anything else should be exultation in the cross. If you exult in the hope of glory, you should be exulting in the cross of Christ. If you exult in tribulation, because tribulation, as Romans 5 says, works hope and, and, and hope and and it works hope within us, and hope, character, and character, love, and it brings hope, then you should also be exulting in the cross of Jesus. If you exult in your weakness, like Paul did in 2 Corinthians 12, or in the people of God, then you should also be exulting in the cross of Christ. But why? Why is this the case? And here's the answer, because for redeemed sinners, every good thing, indeed, every even, even every bad thing that God is and will turn for our good. Every good and perfect gift was obtained definitively for us by the cross of Christ, by the propitiation made there. Apart from their death of Christ as an atoning sacrifice, sinners get nothing but judgment. Nothing but vanity of vanities. Apart from the cross of Christ, there is only condemnation. All the condemnation in the world. Therefore, everything that you enjoy in Christ as a Christian, as a person who trusts Christ, is owing to the atoning, propitiating death of Christ as your Lamb. And all your rejoicing in all things should therefore be a rejoicing in the cross where all your blessings were purchased for you at the cost of the death of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Do you see it, brethren? If we desire... That there be no boasting except in the cross, though, then we must also live near the cross. Indeed, we must live on the cross. Annie Crosby was certainly right when she wrote that hymn Jesus, keep me near the cross. (laughs) That's what Jesus means when he says to take up the cross. This is shocking. But this is exactly what Paul means in Galatians 6.14 when he says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Boasting in the cross happens when you are on the cross. You've taken up the cross and all of its thorns and its pain because you esteem and value that cross as your very life and your hope of every good thing. Is that not what Paul says? The world has been crucified to me, and I have been crucified to the world. The world is now dead to me, and I am dead to the world. Why? Because I have been crucified and resurrected in and with Christ. We learn to boast in the cross and exult in the cross when we draw when we are on the cross and when all of our life is in the cross, brethren. Until ourselves our self lives are crucified. Paul says, you remember in Galatians 6, they that are Christ have crucified the flesh. They are dead with Christ. Until our self lives are crucified there, our only boast will be on ourselves. But that will be all your glory and that will be all your reward. Secondly, draw near to the blood propitiated God. We're going to sing as our hymn of response, Arise, my soul, arise, in just a minute. But just notice the words there because this hits it on the head Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my strong and my half my behalf appears. Why? Before the throne of grace, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He shed his blood. Don't let that ransom sinner die. Hebrews 10, as we saw earlier, Hebrews 10 tells us that we are to draw near to God. But do you remember it says, through the veil, that is, through the flesh of Jesus. Through the blood. That's Paul's. That, that's the author's point. Having boldness to enter the holiest holiness by the blood of God, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. And having our hearts sprinkled with that blood of atonement, let us draw near. Yes, brethren, our God is a consuming fire. He is. He's Aslan. He could bite your head off in a minute. But he is so good. He is so good. And the blood has been shed. Brethren, the response of faith is to draw near. I am accepted in Christ, not in my own works. I'll never look there. I'll look to Jesus. Draw near in faith. Draw near in prayer. Bring your petitions boldly to the throne of grace, to the mercy seat, which has been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus that priceless blood. Bring them there because you can come in without fear. You must draw near without fear. And draw near also to the blood-covered saints. Look at Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Not only do we draw near to God, let us consider one another. To stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Brethren, to draw near to the living God through the blood of Jesus means also that we are drawing near to all of those other brethren who have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ for whom he died. They are blood-bought sinners like you and I, and how dare we not draw near to them in faith even as we draw near to God in faith. I will tell you, this has a, a, a remarkable way of just crushing pride, of crushing the condemning, accusing, backbiting, devouring spirit that we have seen so much. Brother, you want to know how for us to be a church that walks in persistent unity in the Spirit? church where it truly is said of us in fact by this will all men know that you are my disciples because they see the love that you have the way that you build brethren it comes by not more and more law more and more rules it comes by believing the gospel I am a blood washed sinner first and last you are a blood washed sinner first and last but you are a saint and I will love and embrace you as a brother and sister and I will pour into you because Jesus poured into you and he pours into me. And we also then lastly we draw near to the blood covered world. I said this and I'll end here. Jesus paid for the world. When you and I look at the people around us with whom we work, you know, these as C.S. Lewis to these mere mortals whom we work with, live with, play with, marry, snub, <laughs> eternal horrors or eternal splendors. What do you see there? Do you see, yeah, not every one of those people. You know, there's people there, sure, that will reject the Lord, who the veil, as Paul says, will not come off their eyes. There's some. But, brothers and sisters, do you believe, you know what? Just like Paul said in Corinthians, I have many, many people here. Stay a long time, Paul, because I have many people here. Or do we say, you know what? Peoria is so bad. My neighborhood's so bad. And my neighbors are just so lost. What's the point? Brethren, Jesus atoning for the world should give us great hope and courage to raise high the cross, as the hymn says. You know, I love the Christian flag. You know, I will tell you, I, you know, I see people with these flagpoles. It's funny because, the, the, you know, we, we, uh, I, I love seeing flagpoles. But I'll tell you, brethren, a flagpole, if we ever have a flagpole, we're never, ever, ever. God help the man who ever puts an American flag out on that pole. <laughs> If we ever have one, because our allegiance in our, our is to the Christian cross, is to the holy people, is to the kingdom of God. That's our people. And brethren, as we consider the cross, then we go forth in the cross, under the cross, under the blood of Christ, and we go through lifting high the cross, and we go through as the church militant. Because brethren, the cross of Jesus Christ is our life. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us. What, what an amazing truth that we have been redeemed, but that the redemption and the justification you have given to us, sinners, us ungodly, helpless people by nature, that, that this comes because it comes through propitiation. It comes through shedding of blood, a death not just of bulls and goats or, of, or even ourselves, but a death of a, of a perfectly spotless divine human substitute. Oh God, it is right that you should be angry at sin and sinners. It is right that you should be wholly indignant, and unjust. It is right that you should be what you are. We would not desire a world where God was not imperfectly and totally just and holy. It wouldn't be good then. But God, we thank you that in your mercy, you who are that God, that you are also the justifier. You satisfied your own demands. You made your own propitiation for your people. And we stand in grace. We stand without fear before your throne. We come boldly in the name of Jesus because you yourself have bid us near through the blood of Christ. So, blessed cross. Father, today I pray for me but for every one of my brethren here, may we truly be able to say and believe with Paul that I would boast in nothing. May it never be that I would boast in anything except in the cross of Jesus Christ, whereby the world is crucified to me and I to the world, whereby every good gift in this life and eternity was purchased for me definitively and infallibly on that cross by the blood of Jesus. O blessed cross, and more, O blessed man who there died for us. God, may your name be praised amongst your people. In Jesus' name, amen.